Section twenty one of History of Egypt, Volume two by Gaston Maspero. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter two The Memphite Empire, Part nine. The groups are repeated in one tomb after another. They are always the same, but sometimes they are reduced to two or three individuals, sometimes increased in number, spread out and crowded with figures and inscriptions. Each chief draftsman had his book of subjects and texts, which he combined in various ways, at one time bringing them close together, at another duplicating or extending them according to means put at his disposal, or the space he had to cover. The same men, the same animals, the same features of the landscape, the same accessories, appear everywhere. It is industrial and mechanical art at its highest. The whole is, however, harmonious, agreeable to the eye, and instructive. The conventionalisms of the drawing as well as those of the composition are very different from ours. Whether it is man or beast, the subject is invariably presented in outline by the brush, or by the graving tool in sharp relief upon the background, but the animals are represented in action, with their usual gait, movement, and play of limbs distinguishing each species. The slow and measured walk of the ox, the short step, meditative ears, and ironical mouth of the ass, the calm strength of the lion at rest, the grimaces of the monkeys, the slender gracefulness of the gazelle and antelope, are invariably presented with a consummate skill in drawing and expression. The human figure is the least perfect. Every one is acquainted with those strange figures, whose heads in profile, with the eye drawn in full face, are attached to a torso seen from the front and supported by limbs in profile. These are truly anatomical monsters, and yet the appearance they present to us is neither laughable nor grotesque. The defective limbs are so deftly connected with those which are normal, that the whole becomes natural. The correct and fictitious lines are so ingeniously blent together that they seem to rise necessarily from each other. The actors in these dramas are constructed in such paradoxical fashion that they could not exist in this world of ours. They live notwithstanding, in spite of the ordinary laws of physiology, and to any one who will take the trouble to regard them without prejudice, their strangeness will add a charm which is lacking in works more conformable to nature. A layer of color spread over the whole heightens and completes them. This coloring is never quite true to nature, nor yet entirely false. It approaches reality as far as possible, but without pretending to copy it in a servile way. The water is always a uniform blue, or broken up by black zigzag lines, the skin of the men is invariably brown, that of the women pale yellow. The shade befitting each being or object was taught in the workshops, and once the receipt for it was drawn up, it was never varied in application. The effect produced by these conventional colors, however, was neither discordant nor jarring. The most brilliant colors were placed alongside each other with extreme audacity, but with a perfect knowledge of their mutual relations and combined effect. They do not jar with, or exaggerate, or kill each other. They enhance each other's value, and by their contact give rise to half-shades, which harmonize with them. The sepulchre chapels, in cases where their decoration had been completed, and where they have reached us intact, appear to us as chambers hung with beautifully luminous and interesting tapestry, in which rest ought to be pleasant during the heat of the day to the soul which dwells within them, and to the friends who come there to hold intercourse with the dead. The decoration of palaces and houses was not less sumptuous than that of the sepulchres, 
but it has been so completely destroyed that we should find it difficult to form an idea of the furniture of the living if we did not see it frequently depicted in the abode of the double. The great armchairs, folding seats, footstools, and beds of carved wood, painted and inlaid, the vases of hard stone, metal, or enameled ware, the necklaces, bracelets, and ornaments on the walls, even the common pottery of which we find the remains in the neighborhood of the pyramids, are generally distinguished by an elegance and grace reflecting credit on the workmanship and taste of the makers. The squares of ivory which they applied to their linen chests and their jewel cases often contained actual bas-reliefs in miniature, as of bold workmanship and skilful execution, as the most beautiful pictures in the tombs. On these, moreover, were scenes of private life, dancing or processions bringing offerings and animals. One would like to possess some of those copper and golden statues which the pharaoh Cheops consecrated to Isis in honor of his daughter. Only the representation of them upon a stele has come down to us, and the fragments of scepters or other objects which too rarely have reached us have unfortunately no artistic value. A taste for pretty things was common, at least among the upper classes, including not only those about the court, but also those in the most distant nomes of Egypt. The provincial lords, like the courtiers of the palace, took a pride in collecting around them in the other world everything of the finest that the art of the architect, sculptor, and painter could conceive and execute. Their mansions as well as their temples have disappeared, but we find, here and there on the side of the hills, the sepulchres, which they had prepared for themselves in rivalry with those of the courtiers or the members of the reigning family. They turned the valley into a vast series of catacombs, so that wherever we look the horizon is bounded by a row of historic tombs. Thanks to their rock-cut sepulchres, we are beginning to know the nomarchs of the gazelle and the hare, those of the serpent mountain, of Achmim, Thinis, Kasser at Said, and Aswan, all the scions, in fact, of that feudal government which preceded the royal sovereignty on the banks of the Nile, and of which royalty was never able to entirely disembarrass itself. The pharaohs of the fourth dynasty had kept them in such check that we can hardly find any indications during their reigns of the existence of these great barons. The heads of the pharaonic administration were not recruited from among the latter, but from the family and domestic circle of the sovereign. It was in the time of the kings of the fifth dynasty, it would appear, that the barons again entered into favor and gradually gained the upper hand. We find them in increasing numbers about Anu, Menkahoru, and Asi. Did Unas, who was the last ruler of the dynasty of Elephantine, die without issue, or were his children prevented from succeeding him by force? The Egyptian annals of the time of the Ramessides bring the direct line of Menes to an end with this king. A new line of Memphite origin begins after him. It is almost certain that the transmission of power was not accomplished without contention, and that there were many claimants to the crown. One of the latter, Imhotpu, whose legitimacy was always disputed, has left hardly any traces of his accession to power, but Ati established himself firmly on the throne for at least a year. He pushed on actively the construction of his pyramid, and sent to the valley of Hamamat for the stone of his sarcophagus. We know not whether revolution or sudden death put an end to his activity. The Mastabat el-Farun of Saqqara, in which he hoped to rest, never exceeded the height which it has at present. His name was, however, inscribed in certain official lists, and a tradition of the Greek period maintained that he had been assassinated by his guards. Teddy III was the actual founder of the Sixth Dynasty. 
historians representing him as having been the immediate successor of Unas. He lived long enough to build at Saqqara a pyramid whose internal chambers are covered with inscriptions, and his son succeeded him without opposition. Papi I reigned at least twenty years. He manifested his activity in all corners of his empire, in the nomes of the Sayyid as well as in those of the Delta, and his authority extended beyond the frontiers by which the power of his immediate predecessors had been limited. He owned sufficient territory south of Elephantine to regard Nubia as a new kingdom, added to those which constituted ancient Egypt. We therefore see him entitled in his preamble, the Triple Golden Horus, the Triple Conqueror Horus, the Delta Horus, the Said Horus, the Nubia Horus. The tribes of the desert furnished him, as was customary, with recruits for his army, for which he had need enough, for the Bedouin of the Sinaitic Peninsula were on the move, and were even becoming dangerous. Papi, aided by Uni, his prime minister, undertook against them a series of campaigns, in which he reduced them to a state of helplessness, and extended their sovereignty of Egypt for the time over regions hitherto unconquered. Uni began his career under Teddy. At first a simple page in the palace, he succeeded in obtaining a post in the administration of the treasury, and afterwards that of inspector of the woods of the royal domain. Papi took him into his friendship at the beginning of his reign, and conferred upon him the title of friend, and the office of head of the cabinet, in which position he acquitted himself with credit. Alone, without other help than that of a subordinate scribe, he transacted all the business and drew up all the documents connected with the harem and the privy council. He obtained an ample reward for his services. Pharaoh granted to him, as a proof of his complete satisfaction, the furniture of a tomb in choice white limestone. One of the officials of the necropolis was sent to obtain from the quarries at Troyu the blocks required, and brought back with him a sarcophagus and its lid, a door-shaped stele with its settings and a table of offerings. He affirms with much self-satisfaction that never before had such a thing happened to any one. Moreover, he adds, My wisdom charmed his majesty, my zeal pleased him, and his majesty's heart was delighted with me. All this is pure hyperbole, but no one was surprised at it in Egypt. Etiquette required that a faithful subject should declare the favors of his sovereign to be something new and unprecedented, even when they presented nothing extraordinary or out of the common. Gifts of sepulchre furniture were a frequent occurrence, and we know of more than one instance of them previous to the sixth dynasty. For example, the case of the physician Sokat Nianukku, whose tomb still exists at Saqqara, and whom Pharaoh Sahuri rewarded by presenting him with a monumental stele in stone from Tura. Henceforth, Uni could face without apprehension the future, which awaited him in the other world. At the same time, he continued to make his way no less quickly in this, and was soon afterwards promoted to the rank of sole friend and superintendent of the irrigated lands of the king. The sole friends were closely attached to the person of their master. In all ceremonies, their appointed place was immediately behind him, a place of the highest honor and trust, for those who occupied it literally held his life in their hands. They made all the arrangements for his processions and journeys, and saw that the proper ceremonial was everywhere observed, and that no accident was allowed to interrupt the progress of his train. Lastly, they had to take care that none of the nobles ever departed from the precise position to which his birth or office entitled him. This was a task which required a great deal of tact, for questions of precedence gave rise to nearly as many heart-burnings in Egypt as in modern courts. End of section 21 
Read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.